0: Welcome everyone. This is Talks with Petri Show, and I'm your host Petri. We have a serial entrepreneur, venture builder, and angel investor, Henry Nailerd, with us today. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. Great to be on board. Markets are down. Startup funding is getting harder. Cryptos are in free fall. Russia is still in Ukraine. Finland just announced joining NATO. How do you sleep at night?
1: Interesting question, yeah. I try to uh, keep it in perspective. I've, I've um, you know, been around for, for a while. I've been working since 93, 94. And you know, somehow, things always sort themselves in the end. Things are good. Things are bad. Things are a bit more difficult. Things are a bit less difficult. It's, it's, it usually works out.
0: Sun comes up in the morning. Yeah, usually. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. Well, let's go a bit back because I, I think, um, like I explained, there's a lot of uh, turmoil in the market, and but history tends to history tends to repeat itself. Oh, if it's not directly repeating, it's rhyming, like yeah. uh, the yeah. saying goes. Two thousand, you made you were a co-founder of a company which made a two hundred thirty million euros exit, but in eighteen months. So before we go there, can you explain you know, the, the story behind it? What happened? How did you get involved? Uh, and, and then we can go to the details. How, the, how, how, can you, how can you do that when the, the stock market is crashing and everybody is like, uh, running around and trying to save their startups and firing people and whatnot is happening? So Iobox, what is Iobox? What did it do?
1: How did you get involved? Interesting times. Iobox was one of the first mobile messaging-slash-content-slash-entertainment platforms. Uh, obviously, the technology wasn't there yet. We didn't have iPhones or Androids or, or, or whatever. It was text message and WAP, uh, which was this very clunky technology at the time. What um, is WAP
0: for the people you know, uh, who are a bit too young for the WAP?
1: W- WAP? was a way to build very, very, very simple, effect almost text-based, Web pages on mobile phones. It was a lighter kind of form before you know mobile phones could do anything really. Um, and uh, Iobox started. I, I mean, uh, it was started actually by Yari Ovaskainen, and, and uh, it was a very quick story at least in the press. Um, but uh, it wasn't that quick after all. I mean, we, we, it's 18 months from funding to, to or from, from our first funding to, to exit. But uh, we had spent at least over two years uh, on the case uh, before that. Um, the, the business started, was Yari who had, um, you know, this was back in, in 96, 97, when the internet was, was very new. Right. You had Amazon, who had started. You had Yahoo, that had started. Uh, Nokia was growing a lot with the uh, you know the the all norm- normal m- mobile phones that you had at the time. Um, and yet had the idea of combining that, that to to you know initially uh, do a website with uh, email. Um, it was the first. It was a, iBox was initially the first web based email. Uh, yeah, in- there was
0: no Gmail. There was, Yahoo there was mail no Gmail. The there
1: was Yahoo Mail. And, and IOBOX was one of the very first in Europe to do a similar web based email, free type of email, and so on. So you didn't uh, actually
0: know that you have an email if, if you didn't get a text message?
1: You, no, you had to go to your computer and check it out. No. And probably, your home computer. And probably before you had to spend a few minutes you know, dialing up uh, to your internet provider. Uh, anyway, that's. yeah these were the brutal times (laughs) (laughs) and it was very slow but then by chance we happened upon a piece of software I can't remember the name of the company um, that allowed us, it was initially built for operators but that allowed us to connect that email to text messaging and that became the foundation for, for iobox that suddenly we thought okay the internet is happening, the mobile is happening how can we put these things together um, and and we changed over time. We changed the slogan of iBox to Internet on your mobile. Even though the internet back then and the mo- the capacity of the mobile was nothing compared to, to to what you could do today. But that kind of chance occurrence really shifted the company. Um, and then from then on, we built everything around iBox was around the uh, the uh, the mobile. So it was Internet to the mobile. You could get your email to your mobile. It was very uh, rudimentary. You could read the first 160 characters of your email on, <laughs> as a text message. Um, you could get, uh, back then, uh, you know, downloadable ringtones and icons. It was a big thing. Uh, you could download uh, news. You could download weather. You can download stock quotes. We even did uh, agreements where you could uh, start buying things eventually with, with your mobile. We had, uh, you could buy CDs. Again, back when uh, CDs were, were a thing. Um, uh, so we had a few kind of e-commerce integrations as well and, 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 uh, and so on. And, and this was at a time when, uh, if you remember, uh, a lot of your listeners won't remember, uh, when the internet was absolutely booming. It, was, it came from nothing back in 94 uh, uh, with the uh, launch of um, companies like... Uh, uh, obviously Amazon, Yahoo, uh, The Globe, <laughs> which was a European startup uh, last minute, uh, all these names that, that, well, some of them still exist, obviously. Um, and it was incredibly fast. Um, and what we were doing here, uh, we were looking, we were sitting in Finland, which at the time was the backwaters. Most of this stuff was happening in in, uh, in the US, uh, some of it was happening in London. Uh, Finland was a bit behind uh, at the time, but we thought, you know, why not? And, and the kind of advantage from a technical recruiting point of view that we had was that Nokia was here and there was already the, the whole infrastructure around Nokia uh, and, and the suppliers and so on. So we had access to really good engineers uh, who, who we could hire and, and, and who understand it, understood this stuff better than anyone else in the world. So we built this company. Um, uh, Yari had started it back in 2000, early 2006. Um, I got involved uh, in 2007. Uh, sorry, um, 96. I'm a decade off here. Um, I got involved in 1997. And then we did our very first uh, fundraising um, in January '99, with a handful of uh, Finnish and, and uh, UK-based uh, venture capital funds. And we raised €3 million euros, uh, for a company that had three people at the time, which was, at that time, now it's not such a big deal. Uh, at that time, it was a very big deal for uh, you know, Finnish venture investing. There was venture investing and so on, but it happened at a much larger scale for companies that were much more mature than certainly than we were. So this was one of the first in, in, in the region where, where you know such an early idea got proper funding.
0: And that was also almost peak of the market. 99 I think is almost it's maybe the well, end of ninety-nine, if you if you look at the stock market at the time, that was really like, you know, when they were going it, still it up. Was, and...
1: Well, yes, it was a peak of the market, but uh, by that time, the market had been going on for quite some time in, in the U.S., no. but it was actually the beginning of the market in Finland. No, uh, it had been going up and the... so on, but, but uh, the, the year before, I think, if I remember right, uh, Sonara and, and uh, there, were, there had been a, a TJ group and a bunch of other kind of tech and mobile-oriented companies had gone public. Uh, and, and yes, the market had grown and so on. But when it comes to you know, uh, startups. That was uh, close to the peak, but it was also very close to the beginning. The window was very, very narrow.
2: And uh, it was
0: also, oh, sorry to interrupt, it was also the beginning of the VC industry because there, was the, the, there were some VCs before, but they started to make some serious investments. There's new funds coming in. So obviously then they have money now, so they want to spend it. And, and, and these were, there was a lot of investment at the time. Mm. Yeah, they didn't there was yeah, that yeah, well. yeah,
1: but it was it was we had we had uh, SFK which was um, one VC fund with Equitech, uh, which uh, still is around, and then we had a uh, UK-based um, fund called uh, Alta Barclay, um, and <clears throat> it was very difficult to find traction because you know we were way too early for any normal type of investment compared to what they were doing at the time, um, and then we had uh, Miku Yusisuanalati at, at SFK, uh, who was the first guy to say. Listen, guys. I like what you're doing. I'm in. If you find the other two thirds, uh, I'll I'll join this round. And then we went out and and found the other two thirds, uh, and uh, and closed the round. Um, so um, and and that allowed us to 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 move. And and, and at the time, that was a lot of money. Um, and we executed like hell. Um, uh, Yari and I worked really well together. He was. CEO of COO um, making sure things, things happen. We managed to find really competent uh, technical uh, team. Uh, and, and most of our hires were very hardcore technology, which in the end was our insurance policy. When it came to selling the company, the, the, the strength of the technology that we built, that was really the key. Um, because that allowed us to, to sell to companies to, to the type of company that we sold eventually to, to Telefonica, an operator. Uh, and they needed something that was robust, that was solid, that they could integrate, if they wanted to, into, into, um, into their business. Um, but it was a furious pace. We, we Literally, the window in Finland uh, was literally from, from, from that early 99, we probably couldn't have done it before, because uh, the, the funding would not have been available before. Uh, because mentally, people were not ready for this type of thing
0: in in the Nordics. And, and just to give a bit of context as well, what was happening? This was also when the Nokia was uh, at its peak, at least publicity-wise. It yes. was, you know, the the biggest thing ever, was at huge. least coming from Finland. And yeah. and it, it was like the the moment in everything. Internet boom was happening. Startups were happening. Yeah. Uh, Peter Westapakka was having HP bazaar. Uh, starting. So there was a lot of also international uh, focus on Finland. Yeah. So all, all they was building up and, and the excitement in the air that you can build a lot of stuff. Maybe actually I pulled now just uh, to give you a bit of a sense. Uh, I was, while I was doing a research, I was digging out an article and, and I found Henry was talking uh, and this is a direct quote from Cardian article. I, I can put it in the, the show episode notes. Just to give an idea that how you can compare yourself, how right he was. This is 20 years back. There was no Gmail. There was no YouTube. There was no Uber. There was basically everything iPhone. There was, well, the, the, the music player, I guess, was Apple, from Apple coming already at the time, but you know, nothing else was in place. So uh, bear with me. I, I give directly what Henry was talking 20 years, 22 years back. <laughs> Looking to the future, you will have a device that is on all the time, with unlimited bandwidth, with better information and graphics. Further on, it would be nice to have voice recognition as I browse through sites. There will be a little video camera there too. There will be seamless integration between the internet device you have in your home, whether it's a screen, or your fridge, or your desk, and the thing you have in your pocket, and the device you have in your car. It's going to be all the same service, Receive in different ways. I may be typing an email to a friend, a friend of mine from home, reply when I'm sitting in the car. I may listen to it in the car on the phone and then reply talking into the phone. So, 22 years back, you know, it's hard <laughs> to, it's obvious now, but nothing is obvious when, when basically, you know, even text messages are like a wonder. And, and you know, you, the web page is called, you know, text message, you know, you can scroll. In, in WAP. So uh,
1: that was a pretty good prediction and, and uh, but it and it's but it's funny because you when when I guess I don't know what we were thinking back then, but things have come so fast, but when you're doing it, they just seem so slow. So, you know, one of the things we were struggling with at iBox was was that there were there was no infrastructure, right? There was there was basically text message, there was WAP, but nobody really was using WAP. So you know, we were forced to, to focus on text message services and, 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 uh, and so on. And uh, all of these other things that we wanted to happen, uh, you know, they, they, they happened fast and were there today. But when you are running a business and you're you know, uh, <laughs> trying to get things done, they're not happening fast enough for you. Uh, one of the examples, for example, is payments. There, were, there was no way for us to get paid premium numbers premium text message numbers and so on didn't exist at the time the, the operators haven't they were kind of thinking about it and it was kind of perhaps we're going to look into it but it, it was nowhere close
0: yet in finland you could buy a can of coke or have your car washed while paying by mobile that was sort of the experiments going on but it was you not could. like that you could exactly. use apple yeah. pay or anything yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. and there was also when building the company and why you needed quite a lot of money as well, um, the servers, you know, the cloud, uh, you know, AWS didn't exist. So you actually needed to buy these physical boxes and they are in your office. And then you need to, uh, you know, wire them to the Internet. And, and yeah. all this yeah. is like, uh, yeah. enormous well, most, most
1: of the money was spent on, on employees. We, we grew from, from three people to 85, I think, when, by the time we sold. And then we grew a bit after that. Um, but you know you had these Sun servers, right? They cost hundreds of thousands of euros, and and there was no alternative. You had to buy them and find we hosted them at, and and with a hosting provider. Uh, but but still the, the, the tech the cost of, of technical infrastructure was something completely different. And of course all the code you had to write by yourself from scratch. Uh, you can just kind of plug and play like you can today.
0: So what happened? That the red herring. Red herring was. Um... It has a financial meaning, uh, but it was actually a Startup Magazine had a lot of a lot of you know it, it was the thing to be, and they had a conference as well. Yeah, what no, Red
1: Herring there? was was the uh, one of the magazines at the time. You know, following everything that's happening in the internet and so on, and they had these conferences all over the world. And I remember us going. I think it must have been early uh, two thousand to the Red, Her- Red Herring conference in London. Uh, which was huge and uh, a lot of hype had been made about the Iobox. We were by then already obviously in Finland, we had expanded to Sweden, Germany, uh, UK. Um, we were looking at other markets as well. We had in terms of users, quite a lot of users using the, the, the different services and so on. So uh, there was a lot of hype around and, and we were by then looked at as one of those companies that was going to, you know, Continue to grow and then do an IPO and the whole story that that uh, that uh, a lot of uh, other startups were pursuing at the time. Um, But it was funny. I was I was a young guy. I was I was you know twenty eight years old, um, and uh, it was the first time and probably the last time (laughs) I felt like a rock star Um, because you you're you're there. You're the center of attention. I was doing the, the the main pitch. Uh, and 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 Q and A and, uh, and so on, um, and uh, yeah, there, it was it was it was weird to be in that position to have so much attention to have so much excitement around what you know we had been building for the last few years. Uh, it was uh, it was pretty cool. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't last, and it, that doesn't build the business. It helps with our fundraising, uh, but um, it, uh, it was a really interesting experience.
0: How much money did you raise all together, and, and was it difficult altogether, to get the next round?
1: We raised um, three million that uh, uh, early '99. We did a follow-on round uh, of about ten or twelve million in uh, late '99. Uh, so I think in October. Uh, and then we did more like a bridge round, uh, another 10 million just before we sold um, in, in, uh, in the spring of, of 2000. This reminds so, me of actually... So total about total 20, 20 23, 25 uh, uh, million euros.
0: This actually reminds me of Clubhouse, which did when, when, you know, two years back. They did like three rounds within a year or so. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. this is actually explaining yeah. quite nicely the compressed timeline as well. Yeah, But you yeah. Know, it's not so usual to have three rounds of funding within a year or so.
1: No, and you see that more and more. Um, no. Companies who are, who are going and, and you know, keep raising within almost a few months of each other if they see the opportunity, which looking now at what's happening in the markets probably has been very smart for those who have been doing it for last, you know, who, who, who completed their rounds last year. Uh, there are several companies who kind of uh, made sure that they had enough uh, cash in the bank Um, Because it's going to become more difficult.
0: How did you actually get traction? You needed users in order to raise the funds and and, and get to the exit as well. How did it happen at the time?
1: Back then, um, we had a lot of interest, uh, kind of innate interest, just because it was such a new space. So you always have the early adopters who came and, and, uh, and, and, and so on, we had a lot of good PR. We were very well-known in, in, in Finland, and we went to Sweden and, and Germany, there was a lot of, you know, written about us in the press and, 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 and so on. But it came down to very traditional marketing. Um, you didn't have all the online marketing possibilities that, that, that you have today. So you know, we did, uh, you know, uh, outdoor advertising, bus stops and, and uh, train stations. And, and uh, I think we did, yes, we did TV, uh, you know, Magazine, newspaper, advertising, uh, also online, but that was as as you know that market was at its infancy. Google didn't exist, Uh, Facebook obviously didn't exist, uh, and 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 so on. Uh, It's quite traditional and quite expensive. Um, (laughs) So uh, if if you look at uh, I don't know what what our CAC was, Uh, I I certainly know that our LTV was low. But we were in a different market. Other businesses I've built, we've built proper businesses with
2: revenues and profits. Uh, Back then, startups were measured wrongly,
1: probably, on a different metric. What mattered was users. It didn't so much matter how uh, how much revenue we had. And we didn't have much revenue because we were basically asking yeah, you know, young guys to pay with credit cards because there was no real alternative to, to getting paid. Uh, so we focused on users. We gave a lot of you know, service for free. The whole philosophy was that once the payment systems do come in place, we can just plug it in and, 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 and do that. And several companies uh, who later, for example, focused on ringtones and icons and, and, and stuff like that, did that very successfully. But that was a couple of years down the road when, when payment systems had come, or at least premium SMS uh, and, and these type of payment systems have uh, became, uh, became available.
0: So now you have uh, three rounds of funding, 2000 starts, and uh, in the first quarter, things are starting to blink a bit like uh, yellow light or going to, to red already. So can you describe what happened? What was your thinking? in the company and uh, what did you discuss with the founders and your investors and what did it this, you this was a
1: very interesting time i mean we were going big gangbusters and and we we felt the urgency we had a very motivated team we were working like dogs uh, to build this company and to build the technology and to 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 get everything done as fast as possible and i think that that was in the end our our um our strength that that we you know, we, we managed to get a lot done within this short window that was available to us in hindsight uh, in, in that market. Uh, we moved our headquarters from, uh, from uh, Helsinki to London. Uh, that was considered a better place. We were looking at Europe uh, as, as our main market uh, initially. Um, and uh, we had built a, a management team there and, and, uh, and so on. But then what happened, and we were full track. We had hired an investment bank. We were preparing for IPO, um, all this kind of stuff. And then it was March uh, 2000. And in my view, the top of the market was the IPO of uh, lastminute.com, uh, which was, I think, mid-March, something like that. And, and that was the first of these IPOs, of, of, of .com IPOs, which didn't go so well. They traded down. And... At that point, I think everyone in the market sat up and went like, aha, there's a shift in the mood. Um, and I remember quite soon after that, we sat down with, with Yari, um, the, the founder and, and myself. And Yari is a guy who has incredible intuition, really, really good kind of sense for, for you know, what's happening around and, 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 and so on. And, I remember him saying that, uh, and, and us discussing that, you know, let's, um, things have changed. Let's, let's park this thing. Let's change our, let's de-risk it, I think is, is, is the thought that we had. Um, and by then we'd already been approached early in the year by several potential buyers, um, mainly uh, mobile operators who, who were looking at this. remember uh, the mobile operators were bidding for 3G licenses spending billions and billions of dollars uh, for, for, for 3G uh, 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 bandwidth. Um, and they were very interested in what we're doing. We had really good technology. We had a lot of users, good services, and, and, and so on. And we decided at that point to shift our investment banks, uh, it was Morgan Stanley's uh, brief, from IPO to let's, let's try to sell the company. At which point they started this process of, approaching potential uh, buyers, uh, getting bids, and, 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 and so on. And, and the one we ended up with, the one that was most interested, the one we felt most uh, comfortable with, was Telefonica, which was, the, at the time, the, the, the state-owned uh, Spanish telco. They had very good operations in Spain. They were very strong in Latin America. And they had spent an enormous amount of money, together with Sonera, actually, um, on the 3J license in Germany. Um, and they were going through, preparing for their IPO. And a big part of their story for their IPO was not only the fast growth in Latin America, but also the uh, you know, mobile internet effort uh, that they were doing. And, and, and that's why we were so interesting to them because with, with one acquisition, they had a whole uh, service platform that they could talk about. They had millions million of users, more, that, that we had across several different markets, and, and, and that was attractive to them. And compared to the money they were spending on 3G licenses, uh, an acquisition like ours was you know, reasonable.
0: Yeah, they were spending billions on, at least in Finland, it was called like they were buying hot air.
1: It was literally AIR, which they eventually lost, uh, as I understand, because they were not building out, they didn't build out the network eventually as they should have according to the license agreement. Uh, So they actually lost that uh, spectrum. Uh, And there was a big lawsuit a decade later and
0: and so on. So how how do you, when you realize, okay, I need to now do something about the business, sell it, how do you do that? Can, can you walk us through, and if somebody now is listening and say, okay, I need to actually sell as well, I need to find a buyer, maybe I have already some offers, what do you do?
1: But we started a process. I mean, it's, it's internal, external. We had our business, and we were continuing to build that. That's, that's the best thing you can do. Um, because if you, if, you, if, you, if you take your eye off that ball, then you don't have anything to sell. Um, so that was what, what we were doing. We were continuing to build building out our services, our technology, our, our uh, expanding the user base, and, and, and so on. But we started with, and we were large enough, or the deal was large enough, that we decided to work with an investment bank. Um, and we started a process with them, both in terms of uh, getting the company ready, all the due diligence, and you know, making sure that we were clean, uh, which I think we, we were. We had run things quite, quite well. Um, uh, but also you know, soliciting offers you know, and, and getting to a point where we had something that we could decide, that, that it's not like, oh, we'd like to sell, we've talked to this guy. No, we have, okay, now we have three offers on the table and they help coordinate that so that we can look at that at the same time, uh, and which is a better alternative for us. And then we settled on one, which was Telefonica, um, and then started a very interesting... Uh, negotiation process because the, 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 the bankers, they're really good at agreeing in principle deal. you deal. Know, they say, okay, here's the price, great. Everyone's sh- shaked hands, great. And, and they pat our, us on the back and they probably pat themselves a bit on the back and say, deal's done. Um, and, <laughs> and we were like, well, hang on, there's a few details we need to work out. We had different uh, classes of shareholders. We had investors. We had founders, we had employees, we had people with shares, we had people with options, um, uh, we had all sorts of, you know, these type of detail which, which need to be sorted. They, you cannot kind of shortcut that. Um, so we started and, and that, at the end of the day, came down to us to, to negotiate face-to-face with, uh, with Telephonic. And I was, again, I was young at the time. I, I, had, I had worked in investment banking before, so I had been part of it, but never at the, never at the senior level. I've been uh, uh, kind of in the room, but, but not, not in charge of it. And suddenly I was there you know, with real, uh, real money at stake, uh, real money for, for lots of people at stake, not only ourselves and our investors, but our employees. Uh, we, we had been quite generous with options and, and, uh, and, and so on. And we needed to get this, this deal done. And, and any deal, especially in the market, the market was collapsing around us. So we knew or we felt that there was an enormous urgency to, to do something because whenever the market is, 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 uh, is weakening, the risk, of course, is that the buyer either walks away or that the buyer comes back and says, actually, you know, things have changed. We need to change the terms. Uh, and, and they could have probably done that quite significantly. Uh, so it was a bit like, like trench warfare to to kind of work through each of these different issues um, in terms of who would get what. There was things around lockups for founders and key employees, uh, uh, warranties, and who was going to stand behind warranties that we were giving. Uh, Some money was going to go to investors immediately. Some money was going to come to us and employees immediately. a bigger chunk was going to be held in escrow with vesting and, and all these type of details that uh, you need to work out in, 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 in any acquisition. Um, so it was really uh, interesting, <laughs> always. All these things are fascinating to me. Uh, but it was really stressful as well because there was a lot of stake. And, and you know how... I've always had a sense when working with my own startups and, and the startups I work with, it's incredibly fragile. Startups are incredibly fragile organizations until they reach a point where you know, they have a proper business and they're you know, making profits and they can kind of take care of themselves. Um, so I was always enormously paranoid that, that you know, what could go wrong? What, you know, how can we prepare to make sure that we're not blindsided?
0: Are there any issues we haven't thought about? Uh, and, uh, and so on. Do you have any tips how to do the deal fast and maybe make it so that it's also a bit cheaper from the expensive side? Because you have lawyers, you have also investment bankers, yeah. and uh, they may have a bit different in- incentives how they actually Yeah, I think, I
1: think at least our approach or my approach was to keep things close. Let's us stay on top of the details. Let's not hope that some advisor is thinking about it because the... Uh, the clock speed becomes, can become much slower. Uh, and, and then things can lag, right? And decide something this week, or it can, tr- oh, the guy was in a meeting, and he didn't get the email, and uh, then we're three, four, five next week until we decide and get back to telephony with this particular question or whatever. I think so, so speed was, was, was really key. Um, and to do that, because we happened to know all the issues and, 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 and so on, we, uh, you know, we, we kept very tight reins over all the different things that needed to happen. Uh, the other thing we did, we had a big law firm in, in, um, in the UK who was helping us with the documents and, and, and some of the negotiation, but we told that guy two things. Number one, we want you doing the partner, working on this, not his associate, and we agreed a fixed price deal. We didn't want him have any incentive to waste time in order to bill ours. Uh, we wanted him to be completely aligned with us. We want to get this deal done. Uh, and, and we, you know, told him that, you know, don't, don't mess around with finer technical points or legal points, uh, you know, you'll get paid. Don't worry about it. And that is, is a small thing. I don't think that, that made all the difference, but these are the small things that help. To to make sure that things go quickly and that everyone is 100% aligned in in, in getting something done. And we also made it very clear because you have situations where, and it depends on negotiation and and, and the power relationship in in the negotiation. At that point, uh, I don't know what Telefonica thought. They knew we, and we certainly let them know that we had other bidders uh, for the company, Uh, but those bids, in some cases actually were, were, had higher headline numbers, uh, but had more of a share component um, as opposed to cash. Um, so we were clearly more interested in the Telefonica deal, but of course we didn't let them know. Uh, uh, so we kind of tried to keep them on, on their toes as well, that, that they knew that they needed to move fast because we had, or, well, we had alternatives, although it, they weren't our uh, preferred alternative. So I think it's, it's key to keep that tension, I think, uh,
0: to make sure everyone's moving as fast as possible. Did you actually negotiate with other parties at the same time or what was the setup? How how do you uh, have a, like a th- uh, credible threat in, in a sense that, you know, you have to move fast. I, I think you knew also that uh, Telefonica was heading for the IPO, maybe they already published the date. So they had a, you know- They, they, had, need... a clear, they
1: had a clear yeah. deadline. Um, We had an internal deadline, which was partly our funding
0: running out of money in other uh, other ways. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) always. As as well, it's that's that's every startup uh,
0: at some point. But Telefonica Um, knew that as well, but they were not using that. um,
1: I'm not sure how much they were focused on that, or I'm not sure how much they were familiar with that feeling, because they were state owned. Traditional business and the guys we were negotiating with had never been through what we had been through. So I don't think they were focused on that. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, it was about, and, and we couldn't, of course, negotiate with the others because you know, once you sign a, a letter of intent, it's exclusive and, and you can't go. And, and, uh, uh, but they, they knew that we had alternatives. But we kept a very, very tight process. Uh, strict control over everything that went back and forth to make sure that
0: there were no fuck ups. Did you have a like uh, appointed uh, person in, in Telefonica you directly speak or how do you, how do you keep it? Uh, yeah, it was, it was the... basically
1: a group. Uh, it was um, Eliseo who was the CEO of, of their unit that were, they were buying us. It was a, um, uh, uh, their number two and their lawyer. And, and so it was a fairly small group that we knew, yeah. There was very open lines of communication. So that, that was never a problem. Um, the negotiations were hard, but it was always done in a very open way and in a friendly way. Uh, so no, no issues there.
0: Are there any tips? You know, how do you do the negotiations? Uh, what's, is there any takes on, on, on this, this particular case? Or so what do you have learned later on that? You know, because these are the high stakes.
1: Yeah, I think you, you need to know what you want. Right? And, and I think you need to be aware of your issues, what you need to work through. Uh, you need to be able to explain those clearly to, to the op- opposite side. Um, it's not rocket science, really. but, but uh, and, and you have to be willing to... It, it depends on the negotiation, but you have to be willing to take the discomfort. You have to take some risk. If there's really something you want which perhaps you, on the normal circumstances you couldn't get, you have to be willing to bluff a little bit uh, in order to, to get that through. Uh, and I think, in, in this case, I think that both sides were very much aligned. We wanted to get this deal done. They had their pressures. We had our pressures uh, and, and so on. So it wasn't a, 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 an issue. Um, I had several negotiations later with, with other startups with Credit24 when we really had,
2: you know, uh, nothing on our side except um, effectively a bluff uh, <laughs> uh, that that, uh, that we had alternatives when we didn't
1: have alternatives. So so you have to kind of be be willing to take uh, the risk. Um, but the, 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 but, but the best way, obviously, is to be, have an open discussion, have an open trusting, you know, any time we had an issue wasn't because we were, wanted to be difficult, it was no, because, you know, there's this particular person with this particular contract, and we need to find, please, you know, a solution that works for everyone. Um, and in that way, we managed to solve all these things. And it was very intensive. So we, we, we did the main negotiations over a period of, you know, it was literally a couple of weeks, um, so, so um, it, it works, but it requires everyone to be kind of mentally there, focused and, and willing to communicate.
0: Um, after the deal was done, you, you stayed a few years in Telefonica, didn't you?
1: One year. Um, mm-hmm. they, uh, they were great to, to work for and, and, and so on. The, the challenge was that the market changed and, and their strategy changed. So you know, almost the second they bought their three g license, the second they've done their iPO, the market changed completely, the sentiment changed completely. Um, and their strategy around mobile internet changed completely as well. So it took him about you know nine months to realize, that, oh, you know we have this asset that they thought they wanted, and now they didn't really didn't know what to do with it so. Unfortunately, they, they eventually ended up closing it down, um, I think about a year and a half later, something like that. Um, which, which happens. Uh, that was their decision to make. They owned it. Uh, by then, we had gotten paid, and, and, and our employees had, had gotten paid. Uh, so it was it was, no,
2: uh,
1: it was no skin off our nose financially, but of course, it felt um, Difficult because this was a business we had fought to build. This is a business we believed in. We think they could have done a lot with it, uh, but being a big corporate, they, uh, I think they 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 uh, they didn't have ownership of that asset, and eventually they just kind of closed it. I think they could have started a really good as as several. Uh, other businesses uh, you had here in Finland, for example, Yipi, uh Mobile Entertainment, which had a really successful business in in this kind of stuff that we had, mo- you know, mobile uh, uh, text message-based tones, icons, services, news, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they they did a great business across Europe with that. Telephone if one had done the same, it probably gone even bigger across Latin America, but they didn't. So they closed it down. I left. Um, I looked at, at at a couple of other businesses, and then eventually, uh, you know, got involved in in, in another startup, Credit Twenty Four, um, and you know, you move on. But it was a really, really nice, really interesting story. Very intense. Um, and in hindsight, I think, uh, I think we we were we were we were quite good. We we were really really fast. Of course, we had quite a lot of luck with our timing, uh, but I think we, we made the most out of that timing. We really executed like madmen during that short window uh, that we had. And, and that allowed us, and we focused on technology. I think we, the, most of the team that we built was hardcore, heavy-duty, really great tech guys. And Have they built followed? a platform that, that, that really stood up at the end of the day, stood up to due diligence from Telefónica. And, and that's what allowed us to sell the company.
0: Have you followed the people who, be, who were at EObox at the time? What have they done before? Is there like, like there's a PayPal mafia? Is there like ioBox mafia? There, there
1: is. A, there's, it's not as strong perhaps as a PayPal mafia, but most of those people have ended up uh, doing great. Uh, but... Uh, uh, some of them have started their own uh, companies, some of them have moved to, to bigger companies. Uh, uh yeah there there's a connection. I'm still in touch with with a few of them. Um, uh but yeah that, that it's always like that you you, you work intensely with people um, and we we hired really quali- good quality people and and you know they after this story, uh which I think they would most people thought that was a great experience as well. Uh, after that, they've moved on to, to do other great things as well.
0: So this was in the early 2000s. Um, ancient history by now. Yeah, like- it is ancient <laughs> history, but you know, like, like we started history, probably somehow rhymes Yeah. Um, from crisis to crisis hopping. You know, this really shows how old we are, uh, but then you, you, you jumped to a completely different business and you became a founder again. You, you became really involved in the business again. But this time it was nothing to do with the mobile uh, per se, but it was, it was something uh, which was tough, which was different. And uh, can you explain what Credit24 is and uh, how it started and why it started and, and what, what was it all about?
1: Yeah, Lend- lending, one of the oldest uh, businesses of the world. Um, I was in, in London at the time. Uh, we would moved there with Iobox and, and, and then I stayed there. And, and this was uh, during uh, uh, 2006. Uh, and uh, one thing had happened which kind of shifted the market. There was a regulatory change in most of the Nordics, uh, where before, lending could not be done unless you were a bank, effectively. Uh, and the regulation changed, I think it, it was early 2006, where lending was opened up to non-bank lenders. So shadow
0: and, banking was now okay?
1: Uh, yeah, well, shadow, bank, yeah, well it, it, shadow banking can mean other things as well. But, but basically lending by, by normal companies was, was okay. You didn't have to have a bike, bank license, which obviously before had been a huge uh, barrier to entry. And, and uh, I got involved with, with some people who were based uh, here, uh, uh, Rami Ruhan and, and, and Rein Sepp, um, uh, in, in Finland and, and Estonia. And they had been looking at this for a while. And uh, interestingly enough, none of us had any lending or credit experience. Um, uh, uh, Rein and Rami were very good at consumer marketing. That was their Backgrounds, super good consumer marketeers. Um, uh, so, so that's one thing we had. But we looked at the lending market, and we saw that you know if you look at the U.S. or, or, or the U.K., for, you know you have lending for, for kind of prime people, people with jobs and houses and good salaries and 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 so on. But as you go down the risk level, if you look at the U.S. and the U.K., there are lenders at every level of risk. So even if you're a so-called subprime um, borrower, you have alternatives to, to lending at different interest rates and, and so on. And when we looked at the, the Nordic market and the Nordic and Baltic market, it, it was a, there was a different structure. There was lending at the prime level, but then it just stopped. There was, there was no supply below, um, below prime, effectively, or what's considered prime. Um, uh, so that was a, a really interesting opportunity. Um, and as the uh, legislation changed, it opened things up and it led to a huge number of new companies you know, entering the market. Um, they were all the text message, the VP, uh, the, the text message lenders. Uh, we never felt comfortable with, with that approach. We felt that was too loose to, to lend based on a ID number only. So we, we, we never entered that market. We, we went into online lending and, and to do it online allowed us to, to gather more information and to have a process which was a bit more uh, rigorous. And um, it also allowed us to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to gather information, but also to gather more, better information. But also allowed us to have a, a product offering in terms of loans, which was wider than, you know, 100 euros for a month. Uh, so we, we, from the start, had you know bit larger loans, much more reasonable uh, repayment periods up to two years and, 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 uh, and so on. But we entered the market, we entered, uh, we started in Estonia in, uh, after the summer of, of 2006. We opened up uh, then uh, Finland um, in uh, late 2006 and then we went into Latvia and Lithuania early uh, 2007. And at the same time, we did an IPO of the company. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so, so that is, you know, we're keeping was, a bit busy, the conference timeline again. <laughs>
1: um, and the reason we did that was that the, the London uh, AIM market was very hot at the time. It was a very good place to raise money, even for very, very early stage uh, companies. Uh, so there was an opportunity that was open to us. Uh, so we went for it. And, and, um, we, we raised a, a decent amount of money that way uh, at, a, at a good valuation, and, and, and so on. It caused us a bit of a hassle later, because being public is, 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 is difficult. In a, in a, when you're a small cap public company, it's, it's difficult when the markets are, are weak, uh, and as I think a lot of companies that are gone public here will realize as the, their share price comes down. Um, and, and the problem is that it anchors your valuation. You know, even though you have a, you know, no float in your stock price, no one's trading it. Some guy in his, you know, home office is buying hundred shares for, you know, five hundred pounds. It still marks a price, even though it has nothing to do with your, your value, and it makes value uh, funding discussions very difficult. If you want to then raise money from from a VC or or or, or someone privately they will look at your price, even though that price is not real. Not the, the, it's not a, the result of a liquid market. So it, it, it caused it us causes some hassle in funding later on. Uh, but at the time, it was very, uh, very interesting. But that was also a business where we moved uh, incredibly fast. We launched four markets in, in, uh, in the space of literally six, six eight months. Um, so, so Estonia, Finland, uh, Latvia, and Lithuania. Did an IPO um, uh, again. Recruited a great team uh, in 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 technology, um, in uh, uh, customer care. Very heavy focus on marketing. And this is, as you've seen, living in Estonia was it was it was a industry which became incredibly competitive, with a lot of different you know participants uh, doing very heavy advertising in in uh, in all the markets where we were present. Um, but it was super interesting. And, and what was interesting was normally now when I'm as an angel investor, I look at, uh, you know, startup founders and so on. I, I always want them to have a particular edge, a domain expertise. Usually the successful founders are familiar with their base. In this case, we weren't. We had never done lending. Uh, I mean, I remember a very early meeting we had and we were, playing around with a financial model, how this could look and stuff. And you know, it took us a while to figure out basic, basic things. Like, oh, you had to, ah, interest, you had to accrue it over time. You, you, you couldn't book it all. <laughs> you couldn't book it all as a profit on day one. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Um, there are fun- fundamental things like that, which, which we had to learn. Um, but on the other hand, I think, uh, so perhaps this was an exception. Um, that, in, but in this case, the type of lending we did was so fundamentally different from the traditional lending that the banks were doing through uh, mortgages, uh, you know, loans, credit cards, and so on. That had we had too much traditional credit experience, I don't think we would have been able to put our mind around the type of lending we were doing. This very quick uh, scorecard based, you know. Um, lending that, that was really kind of statistically driven as opposed to based on an interview and sitting down and getting to know uh, the, the, the customer and so on I think uh, it, it would have been very difficult to get our heads around that so in, in this case, and I think it's, it's quite rare um, we benefited from not having uh, domain experience what we did had was really great marketing experience and that, that helped us a lot uh, because that, that fundamentally, it's a consumer business. And you need to get people through the door, um, but but then you need to be able to you know manage the process uh, in in a very efficient way, and and know that you are making good lending decisions, so that you you know, so that you have a profitable business. And we managed to do that to some extent. Um, at least we managed to do that to some extent initially. Um, and and if I if I continue the story that. Um, we, we built this, so we're talking uh, 2006, 2007. We were growing a lot during 2008. And as you remember, 2008 is when things started to get very shaky in the US. Credit and, crises. And the credit starting. crisis and so on. And of course, we were fo- following this story like Hawks. It started in the US and it slowly kind of you know, made its way across
0: uh, to, to Europe here again, U.S. leading uh, and then Europe coming a bit later.
1: It seems to be a trend, and, and we're seeing the same thing, uh, you know, today. Um, and, but we were looking at this, and we were growing fast in, in our four markets. Um, we hadn't launched Australia yet then, and we hadn't launched some of the other markets. Uh, but things, and we were looking very carefully at, at, at the credit performance, and, and we, we had uh, built a system where we could really early see, uh, you know, early warning, within a month, we could see if there was a deterioration in, in the loan book, so we could adjust our lending policies quite quite quickly if, if we were started to see that, that things were going south. And we we're of course following the economic news and unemployment rates and and uh, and so on. And still, uh, through two thousand eight, you know, the big crisis was in, it was in September um, two thousand eight when Lehman went bust and and all hell went went loose. But still, our markets felt quite solid. Uh, There was full unemployment, I mean, I think unemployment rate in in the Baltics was 3%, and Finland was a bit higher, but but still very very strong uh, levels of uh, employment. Into late 2008, it felt fine. Early 2009, it still felt fine here. But then, literally the floor fell out of the market. Uh, And it happened very suddenly. Um, and and we, we were, of course, very involved with this because we were lending, we were dealing with lots of you know, consumers across these different markets, tens of thousands of people taking loans every, every month um, and, and, and many more kind of who, who had loans outstanding and, and, and so on. And I believe it was March 2009 where it really felt almost like a physical, like, wow, something now has changed. It was like someone took... The, the water tap, and just put it shut overnight. Um, and as you remember, you know, unemployment went from effectively full employment in the Baltics to 20%, 25%. It was dramatic over a period of, of six months. It was, it was very hard. Um, and we could see, of course, being in the lending business, the impact that had on, on people's ability to pay and, and on cash flow. The hardest was in Latvia. Uh, and we could see that. And I think the, if you look at the economic uh, situation, uh, economic statistics, it's, it's, it shows the same. Finland was the least hit or the, the most mildly hit. Uh, Estonia and Lithuania were somewhere, uh, somewhere there. And then we had a very interesting situation. <laughs> we had, at that time, we had, uh, I can't remember, but you know, we had 60, 70 employees. Uh, we had uh, you know, lots of customers, a big loan book outstanding, large outstanding bank loan with uh, one of the regional banks, uh, and a severely deteriorating loan book. And we really had to do, and we had already kind of started to tighten uh, even before we saw evidence uh, of, of, of poor performance, but then we really had to slam on the brakes. Um, and we had uh, and for some time it looked, and the, the whole story of Credit24, the, the 10 years we were working that, we, we, well, I mean, we should have died, you know, four, five, six times. Um, we've had a lot of different stories, but this was probably the, the most critical. Um, and uh, we had a lot of pressure also, uh, this, this, the picture was so bad that we also had a lot of pressure from our shareholders who felt that, let's just, you know, collect the book and, close shop and, and, and go home, basically. But we looked at this. We sat down with, with uh, Ramin and Rain, and we looked at our models and we felt that there was a tiny window we could navigate. Because the problem is, if you cut too much, you never recover. You don't have the, the volume of business or the, the, or the people to, to come back out the other side. If you don't cut enough, we run out of cash. Um, but we, we played with... The excels uh, daily, literally, and we felt that okay, there's a, just one quite narrow passage that we perhaps could sail through uh, and and take this business out the other side. Um, and uh, it took uh, it took a few months. Um, we never needed to raise additional funding. Uh, we never broke our bank covenants, um, but we we. Went from being an okay lender in a good market, which obviously wasn't good enough in a bad market, but we completely changed our approach. We completely changed our scorecards. We learned a lot. And over time, I would say a period of six months, we became a really good lender also in a bad market. So first you thought
0: that you were a good lender in a good market, but then you actually realized that you know you were not in, in a bad market. So it was just yeah. basically yeah, the and market I think this happens floating. to a
1: lot of businesses, right? That that you know things are going great, sun is shining, yeah, it's easy. When you realize if you're good enough or not is is when things get hard. And that actually, incidentally, I think the credit crisis saved our business. We actually became at that point, you know, competent at what we were doing. We weren't really before. Um, and that was, that was cool. I mean, that, that was really, you really know, good experience. We, we could see it in the numbers. The team could see it in the numbers. We were really excited by this. Um, and, and it gave us a lot of you know, resilience um, to, to kind of keep fighting. Uh, uh, we had lots of ups and downs after that as well. And, and uh, I think we, we always kind of, as a business, look back and say, well, if we can survive that, what are we crying about now? Um, so, so we we kind of rebuilt the business up, uh, rebuilt the volumes. I mean, if you look at the charts, the volumes were high. They went almost you know super low, and then we gradually kind of built back up during late uh, 2008, 2009, and 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 you know several years ahead. So it was a super interesting business in that sense. But uh, it's one again, I think, where where you know, uh, iBox was built on on pure speed. Uh, I think credit four, credit twenty four was built more on, on resilience. We never, and luckily we had team and we could support each other. when when one of us is feeling down that the other one was, could could you know uh, give some encouragement and, and, and vice versa. But um, you know we really became resilient, um, and it served us a few times you know later because it's it's. It's. It was a very competitive business, which had a lot of pressure, um, both from uh, you know competition and and, and, and and so on, purely operational and technical challenges, but also regulation was became a very uh, meaningful and interesting part of the equation uh, as as we continued to build the business because we when we started it was effectively a not regulated business which which was bad. Any business like that should be regulated. But it was completely Wild West at the, at the beginning, which uh, we didn't like because the, the challenge you have in an unregulated market is that you almost, if you want to have a business, you have to go down to the lowest common denominator. If my competitor has a form with three questions, but I would like to ask 30 questions, I can't because customers will not you know, spend the time if there's a minimum regulation which forces everyone to you know, do a, a certain amount of checks, then you know, we're, we're all more on, a, on, a, on, a, on an even playing field. Um, and uh, that became an interesting dynamic as, as regulation came in in all the Baltic states. Um, sometimes it made it harder to do business, but most of the times for us, because we were large enough, we could kind of handle the requirements and we were willing to handle the requirements, it actually became easier because it cleared out some of the competition which
2: was more uh, ruthless in their, uh, you know, lack of, no, uh, best practice in, 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 when it comes to, uh, comes to lending. But
1: we, we had situations where, You know, regulation changed so much overnight that I remember, for example, uh, Lithuania was during most of, actually most of the time that we had Credit 24, Lithuania was our largest market. But we had at least two occasions when because, well, first of the credit crisis and then because of regulation, our volumes went from something to almost nothing. And we had to rebuild the business from scratch. Uh, things changed so much, it was, uh, I can't remember what, to, what it was, but it was one regulatory change um, where things changed so much it just messed up all of our, you know, models that we basically had to build up the business from scratch again. Uh, but we managed to do it. Uh, and we did that in different markets several times. And after a while, as a, as a company, we, we started to realize, okay, we've done this now, <laughs> in this market, that market, you know,
0: things go to hell, fine, okay. Let's get our head down. Let's continue. And we rebuild. So, you basically had like a playbook, you know, how, how, how to build the market. And you already have the risk models and, and, you know, sort of, you know, the ins and outs, how, how to operate.
1: Kind of a playbook, but also the team confidence that we could do this because we've done it before. And the, um, the process, we literally sat down uh, and, and Particularly, um, uh, Rami, the CEO, um, with with the marketing team, you know, they they literally sat down every day and went through the previous day's numbers, in terms of you know what's what's happened, where were we marketing, where are the volumes coming in, what was working, what wasn't working, how do we adjust, how do we adjust, how do we adjust, um, and I think that it's that um, clock speed that I look a lot at when I look today at, at, uh, at angel investing and at, at companies, you know, how do they move? Do you have, do you have the right clock speed internally to get things done? Right. Or are we sitting there saying, Oh, we should look at it. Okay. Let me look at the calendar. Let's meet Friday next week. And it's like, no, let's talk this afternoon and solve it then implement it tomorrow. So I think that the, the speed uh, at which you can get things done in a startup, the, 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 the runway is always so short. The money is always insufficient. What you can do to compensate is, is speed, and I think that's that's incredibly important. That's it's incredibly important to, uh, or it's an incredibly important tool to de-risk your business. Because the more you can get done, obviously, in a short shorter period of time using less money, the less risk you're going to have, and also I'm, the less the market is going to have a chance to change. Um, next to you, whether it's going to collapse, or whether competitors are coming in, or whatever it is. Uh, speed is absolutely critical.
0: And, and then you're actually adjusting daily, and not like weekly or monthly, because you, you're iterating right. all the time, and you're not just doing it in the, in, the, in the bad market, bad situation, you're doing it every time, every day.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it has to be, and, and um, yeah, I think that that concept of clock speed is, is, is super important for people to, to remember. It, and if you look at you know, the, the big successful uh, you know, startups around, whether they're here or, or uh, internationally, they, they all have the same. They don't sit around. They go for it 100%, 200% every day. There's no choice if you want to be, you know, successful in a competitive and changing market. Um, I think that there's no, there's no way kind of around it. And, and I see some startups that don't quite uh, understand that. Um, uh, and it's, it's an important lesson to remember. And yes, definitely also in, in good times. I see it was very interesting, for example, during COVID. Um, I think COVID was, was a, a wake-up call for a lot of people because it was so dramatic. Um, and I suddenly saw a lot of startups making decisions very quickly, very fast, which they wouldn't have done before, but which they probably should have done all the time. Right, really brutal, like things that have been lingering, like uh, you know, should we have this? Do we really need these people? Do we really have the right people? Should we really be doing this activity or that activity? In in this very crisis moment of COVID, all those concerns go away because you're focused on on uh, on the essential, which is surviving a very, very deep crisis. Um, and I think, uh, and, and, and that helped a lot of startups in COVID, but the, the, the problem is that that mentality, that thinking should be there all the time because there is no room, there's no wiggle room. Um, the, the resources are so ridiculously small for most startups, I would say for all startups, even if you've done a 50 million year round. It's so ridiculously small that you don't have room for this, you know, for much fat.
0: Can you, can you teach that to the founders who don't have that, you know, inherently there, or is it just better to, as an angel university, to choose some other, other companies to? Uh,
1: you can teach it to some extent, but the, uh, of course people need to be open to, to listening. And um, and, and this is just life right unless it's happened to you yourself before it's very tough you know I've, of course I've had people tell me stuff, you know till they turn blue probably before and you know I don't yeah yeah whatever fine it's I get it but you don't really get it um, yeah, until the until COVID the...
0: hits or something else happens yeah. it's like uh, hey w- yeah. what did you say <laughs> about this thing
1: <laughs> exactly right <laughs> So, so it's uh, unfortunately, many times you just have to learn it yourself. But of course, it's, it helps to listen uh, and, and it helps to look at the experience of others. Um, yeah, there's like a, there's and, a and lot Andy of stuff that has happened before.
0: Yeah. Uh, he, he said many years back that only the paranoid survives. So I think that sort of mentality is, is, is still there, what you need. Yeah. Um, yeah. Closing the Credit 24 uh, story, not credit, a credit line. Uh, what What's happened? still going on? They, they, yeah, they, yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, so, yeah. So, um, so, so Credit24 is doing great. Uh, we had, by then, five countries. We'd opened Australia as well. It's a different story. Uh, but it was a very attractive market for, for this type of, of, uh, of lending, and we had some connections there. Um, we were then approached by um, uh, several companies, but, but one in particular uh, called International Personal Finance, and this is a very interesting uh, typical story that you see with the, the traditional media companies in the region and globally where you know, they had a very traditional business. They were doing doorstep lending. So they had 30,000 agents in, across Eastern Europe and Mexico making cash loans and doing weekly cash collections.
0: So Great you mean business. that they're like a vacuum cleaner salesman, like a uh, you know, salesperson knocking on their doors, and would you like but, to have a credit? But for loans.
1: And this is a very traditional way to do it. International person had did it very well in a very uh, ethical way. Almost all of their agents were women who were lending money to, to people who otherwise couldn't get access to credit in, in those markets. Huge business. Um, but they were feeling the squeeze from online suddenly. They, their biggest business was in Poland. They were in Hungary, in and, and Czech, in and, and, and Slovakia, in and, um, Romania, Mexico. Uh, and they were starting to feel the squeeze from the online business. They did not know online. They were still a very much paper-based, uh, you know, massively hierarchical uh, uh, business. They had really good cash flow. They had really good lines of credit. Uh, uh, this had, is
0: like mid uh, 2010s.
1: Uh, this we're talking now uh, 2014 when, when, when they initially approached us, um, and, and uh, uh, we at the, at the other side were very good at lending, but we didn't have the best access to credit. We had good access to credit. We had issued bonds on the Stockholm Stock Exchange, uh, and we were raising money uh, for the loan book uh, uh, that way, but it was too expensive, really, uh, to be very competitive long-term, and, and we felt this. Um, And they approached us uh, and uh, we agreed uh, a sale. Uh, Again, that's a sale that was because of the particularities of the stock market um, that had to happen really quickly. They they literally, given by the regulator, the UK regulator gave them a month to kind of do a deal or, you know, go away. Um, So again, furiously uh, executing that one, but it worked really well. They were prepared, we were prepared you know, with online data rooms and and and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it was interesting. You know, they they were such a, a traditional business. We had to, for example, when we went through tech due diligence, we had to convince them that it was okay to host things in the cloud.
2: <laughs>
1: they they for that them and how it worked with data privacy and all this kind of stuff. It's something they had to get their heads around because they'd never you know done that. Um, but eventually, we we closed a deal, and they did. They were a very good acquire. They had definitely read the book on, on how to acquire a business, um, and the reason they acquired the business was was just this, right? They had their traditional business, you know, gradually under pressure, and they wanted to, uh, you know, move to digital in the same way that, uh, uh, you know. Danoman, and Bonnier, and, and all these other guys in, in the region are, are moving, have moved from traditional newspapers to, to digital uh, services. And they were trying to do the same in, in lending. Um, and they had definitely read the book that they gave us a lot of autonomy, it gave us a lot of resources, but at the same time a lot of autonomy to execute. So with their support, we managed to grow significantly the business, and the core business in the Baltics and, and, and Finland. We opened Poland. And and by then, I had shifted to to new markets. So I opened Spain, I opened Mexico for them. Um, And they're doing great today. They they really continued to work, and I'm still in touch with some of my ex-colleagues there. So that has been a really, really good, um, it was a decent exit for us. I think if we had waited a bit, it would have been even better, but at the time it it was an okay decision. A very good acquisition for them. And and the, and the business has thrived. It's now called IPF Digital, um, and and it has thrived uh, and and still going quite strong uh, today. So that that was a good um, good ending. And in this case, unlike the Telefonica story, they've definitely used and continued to build uh, on on the business that we had built, which is the way it should the way it should work.
0: You you hinted early on that. Okay, there was this regulatory deadline that they needed to close the deal, mm. uh, but then then you say that you, you you didn't actually have anyone else, uh, you know, for, for any ad- other acquirer at, at that point, so you needed to sort of fake it. How, how did you manage to uh, negotiate and, and, and keep it sort of the leverage on your side and and make no, it? A good no, no,
1: that actually was not uh, in in that situation. It, it we had another bidder earlier who had who had backed away. Um, and, uh, but uh, in, in that situation no, I think uh, it was kind of it was an agreed, we, we quite quickly came to an agreed price and because the regular the, there had been companies sniffing around us for a while and the pressure you get in being an enlisted company according to the rules is that at some point this becomes material information that you should disclose and we were of course very in close contact with the U.K. regulator, um, stock exchange regulator, to, to, to make sure that we were following the rules and, 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 and so on. But when finally these guys came with an offer, the, they decided uh, that, you know, fine, you can keep it. Uh, you don't need to disclose it, but we give you a very tight deadline to get it done. So by that time, actually, in this situation, uh, we, we were we were quite aligned, actually. They wanted to do the deal. They wanted to do the deal. The price had been agreed, had been communicated to the regulator as well. So there was very little you know, wiggle room for anyone to, to, uh, to play games. Um, uh, and it was a situation where the regulator had told them, you either do a deal now or you have to walk away for at least you know, a year plus. And, and, uh, and so on. I've had other negotiations for example, with our banks at the time where it was very difficult for us to find you know, funding for the loan book when with Credit 24. And, and uh, until we, we, we started tapping the bond markets, we had a relationship with a local bank. I'm not going to mention who, but a but good, really good, solid uh, uh, bank in the region. Um, but the, the, the challenge we had was well, that was a credit line secured against our book, our, our loan book, but it renewed every year. Every year we had to rewrite the agreements and it so happened it was in January every year. So, you know, Christmas was always yeah, a Yeah, happy holidays.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and every time, and, and we went through several cycles of this uh, while that relationship lasted and, and we never really had good alternatives. Uh, and every year they tried to squeeze us a little bit more on the terms and and, and so on, and, and it, it became quite challenging because we really didn't, you know, it's one of these things, you know, if you have a big credit line uh, and if you, can't, um, if you can't renew it, you have to pay it back. And
0: yeah, it's a bullet loan, isn't it? So it's you, a you bullet to... loan. It becomes a no. bullet loan.
1: Uh, so it's, 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 you know,
0: you have to renew it. <laughs> so they have uh, enormous leverage on their side, and, and you know enormous. the timing is, is and, not and the, the, the best. The deal. challenge
1: for <laughs> us was how do you negotiate with nothing in your bag, literally nothing in your bag. And clearly, we were a very good customer to them. We did every, we never broke any covenants. We paid good interest. We always, I made sure I was CFO and COO at, at Credit Twenty Four, so I was in charge of these things, and, and I made sure that you know we treated them like gold-plated platinum customer. Anything they wanted, we were always there responding to them uh, and, and so on. And they appreciated that. We were a good business for them. So I think we had that uh, going for us. They didn't want to break the relationship, but at the same time, we had no alternative. So every, every time we came to this yearly credit renewal, became, it became very interesting. You know, how do you negotiate and pretend <laughs> that you're playing tough when actually uh, you, you don't feel so tough uh, at that moment?
0: So you, you can still feel the moments, you know, thinking back that, you know, to go to those meetings.
1: Oh, I still, I still have, like, PTSD from, <laughs> 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 from that. Um, uh, and that was actually interesting when, when we sold the company to IPF. Um, I actually remember uh, we, we had done the deal. Um, it was signed. There was not, nothing, even World War couldn't have kind of broken that deal at that point and it was just before christmas and uh i remember it was it wasn't a very good christmas i was sick the whole family was sick we all came down with the flu but i was so happy it was the first christmas (laughs) in i don't know how many years where i knew i didn't have a funding crisis waiting for me right after the holidays um so in that sense it was and it was really great It it was it was really a pleasure to work for the buyer uh, for a time because finally we could do everything we wanted to do without uh, any funding limitations. We actually could just execute the business. And, and uh, working for them, expanding the business we had, it opening you know, Poland, Spain, Mexico, uh, that was really fun. But after a year I figured you know, uh, I'm, I'm not a corporate guy anymore so I decided to leave and, and uh, move on to, to uh, yeah, what I'm doing now, which is angel investing.
0: Before, before going to the angel investing and venture building, just a final question. Um, how did you come up with the prices, you know, for the uh, when, you, when, you, when, when it was IOPox, this case, uh, how do you pull a number? And, and, and then in the, this other case, like you mentioned that because you're publicly listed, there's always somebody from the basement, uh, you know, trading a few stock and maybe if it's not even liquid. Uh, then you have already a number. And these are completely different. You always have a number in one case, and the other case, it's like, okay, what's the proper valuation? You have
1: a number. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, life is life, and you deal with the numbers that you have. So the, there's not much wiggle room. The, the offers that came in were for iBox were all within a ballpark of, uh, of where... You know i think i can't remember exactly but perhaps telefonica came in with a little bit
0: lower and we we increased it a little bit um, we could see that it was a good number so uh, you already get them basically from the from the offers you didn't sort of need to do it yourself obviously you have some kind of idea from yourself but you know it was more like it was given to you so i'm it was sure sort no of well i'm
1: sure i'm sure and i wasn't part of those negotiations but i'm sure there was discussion between our bankers Morgan stanley and 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 telefonica about you know and I'm sure, yes, we probably indicated, oh, you need to be at least at, you know, 200 or whatever, uh, some number that, that, you know, in order to set the base. So there is some negotiation there. Um, in, in, uh, in, I, in Credit 24's case, uh, we had a listed stock price. So it was very difficult to get away from that. So, so I think that's something that all these companies that have recently listed on, on uh, North and these, these regional uh, markets Keep in mind that that that's, has a risk of becoming a, a drag on, on, on their valuations because you, you have a public record, and it's very difficult for an acquirer or, or funding to go to their board and say, Hey, we have this great deal, but we're going to pay you know 100% more than what it says on the stock price. It's mentally challenging. So, I think in, in credit 24's price, it was a number, it was a, a premium to that number, uh, but it was that became the, uh, the anchor. Eventually it was okay, but clearly uh, <laughs> you would always want more, but I'm, I'm not complaining.
0: So after, after the exit, uh, you started to do serious uh, angel investing. You've been doing at least plus 20, uh, 30 deals uh, less than 10 years now, some seven, eight years going strong. You also build a, you, you call it venture studio. You were building your own startups at the time. Mm-hmm. You were also having a team in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Can you tell what you, before going to the angel investing, and, and I, I think there's a nice angle we can talk about, you know, how does it look from the angel's perspective when you're selecting and, and you know, looking for different companies yeah. so that the entrepreneurs can, you know, learn from that side. But uh, what is venture building and what did you learn from, from that experience?
1: We, we had, uh, so right after I left uh, um, Credit 24, um, wanted to do something different. And I got in touch, or we got to know uh, two guys, Nico and Yuho, Nico Porca and, and Juho, uh, uh who uh, had this idea of, and we had, we had a bunch of different businesses we thought could be interesting to do. Um, and we're thinking, okay, how could we get that done? And so on. And they had some connections in, in, um, in Ukraine, in VIV. In uh, Western Ukraine, and uh, we kind of uh, started to, to uh, yeah, look at you know how how can we you know ourselves fund and and grow you know some of some of these business. Uh, so we launched a few. We, there, there was a company called Meshly. There was a, a company called uh, Shoot, which is a video app. There was a company called uh, Future Dialogue uh, that we kind of built using resources that we hired in in this office in in Ukraine. Great guys, uh, fantastic talent uh, over there. Uh, And I've always enjoyed, very easy to work with and and, and straightforward. Um, And we built them. And it's the case with these type of startups that they're easy to launch. They're usually quite easy to fund initially. But, you know, as they say, the, the, the rubber hits the road a bit further in when things get tough and, and, and so on, and that's where you know, having the right team becomes super important. And what you realize is, at least we found, and other people have perhaps managed to do this better than us, but a venture studio, when you're kind of building your own concepts, you can't run all of them, so you have to hire people or find people who come in as, as co-founders, but it's always different when it's not their idea. They come in, they get excited, of course, they do a lot of work, they might be very competent and so on, but things inevitably get tough. You run out of money, you the initial product doesn't work, you have to pivot, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And and at that point, you know, the difference between founder who is you know fully invested, has lived with this, their idea, versus someone who's come in is very, very different. And we found it to be difficult, not only to you know have the right you know commitment from, from from people, but also to get those companies funded. Because since the venture studio started the, the business, they usually have most of the cap the, the, the ownership, and that doesn't work with VC and or or later stage uh, investors. They want to see naturally, and, and 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 I'm very much for this now as an angel investor. They want to see that the, the the founders and the core team own you know most of the company, and that's very difficult to do in a venture studio environment. For at least so at least in in our case, um, uh, you have a few exceptions like Rocket Internet in the, in, in Germany and, and, and so on, where they've you know taken a massive resources to you know duplicate businesses that existed in the U.S. and and done so very successfully, but. Uh, I found that the venture studio model, at least for, for us, was very difficult uh, to, to sustain. Um, interesting way to, to kind of test different ideas and so on, but difficult to, you get the rock, wrong structure from the start, both in terms of team and, and, and cat table, and that ends up biting you um, when, when you get, you know, when the business moves on. So, so I decided um, that that got converted. So, so that venture studio, uh, same work and same uh, people. Niko Newhor and, and, and Nadia, uh, our um, manager in in um, in, uh, in Ukraine, is, are still involved. It's uh, more of a talent acquisition um, group now called Talent Byte. Uh, they help uh, companies recruit, both recruit. Remote uh, workers in, in Ukraine, and also relocate uh, you know, workers to Europe. More difficult now because people, at least at least men of a certain age, can't move out of Ukraine at the moment. Uh, but uh, talent TalentBytes is definitely still alive and kicking, and and uh, you know people need resources. They're great resources for really high quality uh, developers. But personally, I moved on to to angel investing, um, which. Um, I find fascinating because you, you you meet up with, with so many you know great founders. Uh, there's so many good ideas out there, and I think I've been able to to, to get involved with, with a lot of business, As you said, over a bit over thirty so far, um,
0: so I'm quite active uh, in 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 that. So, how do you find the good deals? Uh, is it like uh, they are? ding-donging uh, in your inbox all the time and it was like, wow, <laughs> dude, this morning, you know, this could be a good opportunity or where do they come and what is the best way to, to find them? You know, this is now the angel investor's perspective, which is completely different from the entrepreneur's perspective but because yeah. uh, obviously if you understand how the angels are picking the good deals and finding them, that probably helps you if you have a really good deal. Uh, but you don't know too many people because you just are, you know from different place, or you're yeah. just young and you don't just have the network yet. But you know, you you know that this is a perfect deal for Henry, for example. That yeah. you know, what's the best way to get to you? Uh,
1: diff- different ways. I mean, when I started, I I, I was completely new. I've been so uh, focused on Credit 24 for ten years that that you know I, <laughs> I didn't know anything else. I I could tell you everything about you know lending and and you know how to manage, market, uh, make and collect a consumer loan, but <laughs> I didn't know much else uh, for, for, so I started kind of by expanding my network. I, I joined the, the local uh, you know, Fiban, which is a great uh, angel network here in, in Finland. I got to know angels in, in, in Estonia and in, uh, in, uh, in Norway as well, um, where I've done a, a several deals. Um, so it's, it's kind of networking initially and, 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 and so on. Um, uh, and a lot of the deal flow comes <clears throat> From that, you, you get to know people, they hear, they understand what you are interested in, uh, and, and, and so on. <clears throat> Obviously, the, the different conferences, Slash Arctic 15, Latitude, um, you know, these I've always found very useful as well because you, they might not lead to deals, but they lead to connections that lead to deals, and at some point. Um, uh, so it's really just become known in the market, of course, LinkedIn and, 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 and this type of profile um, uh, helps. But most of my investments, I think, have come in one way or another through, through people I know. Uh, I work very closely with, with um, other angel investors. Um, over the last few years, I've worked particularly closely with two angel investors, uh, Ali Omar, and and Pekka Ulitalo, we work uh, quite closely and look at deals together, and, and and so on. And that's a very interesting dynamic because we're quite different as people. We have different insights, um, and uh, that allows us to to analyze deals uh, quicker and kind of get uh, you know good good feedback. And it also allows us to work together. So from a and and to to do a bit uh, larger angel investments together. So from a from a um, uh, founder point of view, we can come with you know instead of coming with tiny tickets, we can come with a proper funding round, and, and uh, help also organize the rest of the funding round if needed. Um, so so that uh, that dynamic I find very interesting to work with angel, and we work with other angel investors as well. Um, so it, it really I think it's it's network right. Uh, you have a lot more chance me getting interested in the deal, if it comes through someone, you have a lot more chance me getting interested in if we happen to met personally. It's, it, the value of, of that is so big compared to you know, a cold email coming in and I don't know you from Adam and, and it might be the best idea in the world and, and it's my loss if I miss it, uh, but it's tough to, to, to focus on it, right? You, you're, you, you see a lot of deal flow, and as an investor, you have to quite quickly try to make a uh, determination, okay, is this something that you know, should be on the top of my list? And the time you have to make that is, is very limited. And it really comes down to you know, probably too much. It should be probably more objective, but it comes down to, to feeling, uh, you know, is this something... That makes sense to me. Uh, are these founders, do they seem professional, solid? Do they have domain expertise, which I didn't have when we did uh, when I did my previous startups, but I, I, I definitely look for today because I see the, the difference it makes. Um, have they managed to get something done, right? There might be startups I frankly don't understand, but they have traction. Someone thinks this is important. Uh, and that, you know, then might warrant more investment on my side and, and to get my head around it. Um, and very importantly, are they, have, they, have they been able to move things forward? I think that's critical, right? It's back to what we are talking about before about speed. Is this team able to move things forward? Or are they, you know, pretty much where they were six months ago, and, you know, not showing an ability to, to, to move the ball. I think that so some of these things come in, uh, in terms of trying to decide which cases to, to
0: focus on or not. is the same logic going also for the next rounds, like you already in, and, and you like the startup, and, and obviously you believe on them because you invested, but now they, they need a next round of funding, maybe they're going for for VCs getting a bigger one and they obviously knocking on your door first and asking yeah. that, you know, uh, are you pitching in? Are you doing a prorata? Can you help us? How, what happens there? You know, oftentimes it may come a surprise that you say no. No, I'm not actually, you know, supporting anymore. I'm not putting more money yeah. in. Yeah. Why is that? And, and can you can you elaborate a bit of that? The...
1: It's very difficult. It's very difficult. And, and you won't to, and, and we spend a lot of time on this, right, with, with the startups that I work with, that, you know, what's the plan? What do we think we need to achieve? So when we get in, first investment, right, what's the plan? What, what, you know, with this money that we're now raising, it gives us a runway of, you know, 12 months, 18 months, whatever, everyone wishes it was longer, it's usually, it's always too short. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but that's, that's life. But what do we need to achieve in order to prove to startups is it's you know it's it's two things right it's it's a learning organization right the job of a startup is to learn how to do your business and secondly to get enough data that you can prove to others that you can do your business um and we spend a lot of time on this when, when we first get involved and in, in terms of planning so in an ideal scenario or worst case scenario better case scenario whatever what do we try to achieve by the next round, if if that's what we're talking about, right? Um, ideally, you would you know not have to do next round and become profitable, and so on. Unfortunately, it, at least in the type of case I look at and the stage they're at, they usually need more time before they. It's reasonable to to start you know thinking about you know uh, running profitably. Um. So, so so that's usually what it is, and and you know is it uh, you know that that the product needs to be built. Um, that there needs to be you know, proof of concept with, with at least uh, you know, a certain number of, 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 of clients. Um, you know, it could be at, at that kind of early stage, right? You need to prove that you, from our discussion we're having now, where we are today, you need to go from this great idea to being able to prove that you can go in the market and get some customers. It doesn't need to be many, some customers. Others are, might be a bit more advanced. Um, uh, if if uh, and they're already in the market, they already have lots of customers. But you need to be able to prove that you can go beyond your your current niche. Let's if you finish startup. Unfortunately, often they start in Finland. Uh, okay, you have a good traction in Finland. You need to prove in order to have any chance of you know really scaling your business meaningfully that you can do another market. Uh, that becomes the goal, right? So how do we do that? What Changes do we need to do to your product? How do we need to adapt it to that market? How do we approach that market? How do we market? We need to prove that we have something that's re- replicable. In the same way, we had to do it for, for Credit24, <clears throat> that every market, we, ha- we eventually developed a playbook that we could quite predictably, actually, say that, okay, here's a market. It has these characteristics. Therefore, we need to operate in this certain way. And then we could, over time, show that there was a J-curve for each market, that yes, when we open shop here, the, we take losses this way, and usually within X months, we we break a profit, and it goes from there. And that became quite predictable in Credit Twenty Four, and that helped, of course, our discussions with investors, and eventually when we sold them, and and, uh, and so on. And I think startups need to do the same way. So I think that's, that's the, the 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 key to understand you know, what you need to deliver and, and to have a very focused plan because I always say, like, running a startup is like drinking a, one of these McDonald's milkshakes through a straw. There, there's a lot to do, but only, <laughs> only very little comes through. <laughs> so you have to be very careful about those sips that you take. You don't have many moves to make and you have to be very careful about those moves. Um... So, so that's the, the, the bottom line. And then to your question about, you know, when, when do I participate, uh, you know, and, and you have two um, main different scenarios, right? Things go well, things don't go well. Uh, when things don't go well, there's enormous pressure from the existing shareholders to put more money, uh, to buy more time, because they're all invested, they have money to lose, and, and, and so on. And... Um, uh, and it's obviously more difficult to get in new shareholders, and those new shareholders or new investors look even more at okay, what are the current guys doing? Um, and it becomes an interesting discussion. But as an angel investor, you have to be quite disciplined. Uh, it, this, this angel investing, I do it because I'm interested in, in the startups and the founders, and that's, that's why I do it. But it's also a financial game and it is an investment of money and that investment needs to have a certain return um and there's a quite wide li- you know literature behind this in terms of you know you have to be very disciplined you have to have diversification uh you can't you know put all your eggs in in in, in a few baskets because companies do fail uh and it's inevitable <clears throat> and and you, you, you do rely on those you know, handful of companies that actually do make it for your, the, the most part of your investment returns. Um, so you have to be diversified, which means you can't keep you know, writing checks to a company that's not performing. It just doesn't work. However much you like the guys and so on, it, it, you have to keep that discipline. Um, and it's also um, uh, an objective thing for me that, if I had one company where I was so invested that I couldn't sleep at night or I was too worried, then I can't objectively advise the founder. There might be things that I tell them to do that frankly, it's not really in my interest, but it's best for the company, best for the founder, right? In one case, I even told, you know, move on, right? It's not gonna work and fine, it, take a hit, but that, would be the right that was the right decision for 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 that founder so you have to kind of it's the balance between this passion and, and and wanting to support uh and the the discipline of of running a investment portfolio which you know my my book at least needs to perform needs to have a certain return that return needs to be better than other less risky investments uh on on the aggregate and and in order to do that, you, have to, be, you know, have to, of course, try to find good companies with good founders that have a high, high, high chance of, of success. You have to be disciplined in terms of how you, how you invest in them. You have to be diversified. You have to be disciplined in how you, how you follow. Um, and um, uh, you also have to be disciplined in terms of, for example, the valuations. I see too many, unfortunately, great businesses. I'd love to invest, but... I just feel the valuation is too high, and therefore the potential return is not there, and therefore I, it doesn't make sense for me to participate. Then you have the other cases, the, the good cases. Uh, and, and there, of course, it's a nicer situation. You know, first of all, you have, um, you have other investors who want to participate, so there's less pressure on, on uh, uh, current shareholders to, to, to invest. But then, of course, you want to. You want to follow your, your winners to a certain point. Um, because at some point, and, and I I've, I've definitely follow uh, where, where it makes sense, but at some point, the valuation in some good scenarios becomes so high that you start thinking, well, hold on, I already have a stake. I came in very early. I already have a certain stake. Me participating here, although I think it's a, it's a really good case, doesn't move the needle so much anymore, because I'd get a point whatever percent more. I'd, ra- I'd rather than spend that money down on, on, on a newer, uh, earlier stage case, where again, the upside uh, is potentially, always potentially uh, higher. So it's, uh, it's really interesting. I, 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 l- I love doing this. Um, I love talking to founders. I love helping them solve their issues. Um, um, and there's a there's a, you know there's a, there's a human element to it. There's a business element to it. There's a financial element to it, which I find really interesting.
2: What is your favorite word? Ah, oh, difficult. Um, I would say. I don't know, it sounds cliche, opportunity. What is your least favorite word? Probably something along the lines that, you know, I can't. I don't know. And my
0: answer to that is usually no, (laughs) figure it out. (laughs) What turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally?
1: Ah, of course, I mean, you know, uh, family and working with my kids and, and, and doing stuff with them and, 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 and seeing them on the professional side, it's, I think it's working with, with people that are fun to work with, that have the energy, that have a positive attitude, that,
2: that you know, that, that want to do stuff. What turns you off? Mm, excuses. Complaints. I'm not interested. Whining.
1: It's, you know, let's find a solution. I'll help you find a solution, but let's not complain about
2: it. What is your favorite curse word? Probably
1: Finnish. Perk. Um, sounds, it's like, it's like very strong. I, my Finnish is horrible, but, but that one is a good one.
0: Yeah, we didn't have the time to go, but I just want to mention that you were born in New York, uh, uh, you are Swede, born in New York, you were raised up in, in France, and, and now you live in uh, Finland, so, yeah. so there was a lot of Sweden. curse words to pick up.
1: Yeah, I've never lived in Sweden, actually, it's funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but my passport is
1: Swedish, yeah. But sound or noise uh, do you love?
2: I don't I, I don't know. It's, it's... Probably a good song, uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't give a specific one for now.
0: What sound or noise do you hate?
1: Same theme, loud music when you don't want it. Background music.
2: I, yeah, drives me up the wall. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt?
1: Probably carpenter. It's, um, you know, you spend your days looking at computers and numbers and stuff. And carpenting, you know, it feels very liberating. You build stuff, you see the results every day. The little carpenting I've done, which is not much, it's very satisfying.
0: What profession would you not like to do? Probably auditing.
1: Nothing wrong with auditors, but um, it's checking someone else's work. Um, I, I, I think that,
0: that that gets a bit old pretty fast. Sounds like you've been doing too many DDs. Yeah. <laughs> <That as> well. <laughs> if you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose?
1: I would join the Wright brothers. They had a bicycle shop. The air, you know, flight was a big deal back then. And they were trying to solve I think if I remember right, they were trying to solve uh, the wings, lift, power, and control. And and the one thing they did differently is they focused on control. They decided to figure out how to control first before power, which is why they did all these experiments with uh, the gliders and stuff like that. That would be that must have been fun.
0: Yeah, and they were really like a startup, if I remember correctly. They were they also were. the they underdog. Yeah. Nobody believed on them. Yeah, they exactly came out yeah. of the blue and, and yeah. they, 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 there was other competitors, so to speak, who had a lot of funding, even government backing, and, and they just couldn't produce. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Any final words uh, to the audience?
2: No, I think um, difficult to say, but stay focused.
1: Be quick. And don't give up. I think I mean, those are the themes we've been talking about. It sounds cliche, but there's a reason why, and, and uh, it's because it works. It's, it reduces your risk and therefore enhances your chance of success.
0: Always a pleasure to talk with you, Henry. Thanks so Likewise. much. Thanks for everyone joining us. Until
2: next time.